you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the first epistle of John. Yes, you heard that right. Not the Gospel of John, but the first letter of John. If you have if you're unfamiliar with that book, you can start at the back of your Bible in Revelation and just move to the left till you get to John's letters. John wrote, in addition to his Gospel and the book of Revelation, these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We are coming now to a, a, a brief interlude in our series in the Gospel of John. We're going to spend the next few months in a topical series on the family. And so we will be discussing various aspects from the scriptures about the family. This morning we're going to look at the model for the family in the family of God. And then we'll look at the foundation of the family in marriage. We'll look at fathers, we'll look at mothers, we'll look at children. We'll look at challenges that come to the family from sin, the devil. And we'll look at tools that God has given to the family, prayer and teaching, to help strengthen it. And so this is a good place to take a short break from the Gospel of John. Never fear, you have a few years left in John. We've gotten through John chapter 11. John breaks up, as you heard me say before, into two halves. The book of signs, in which Jesus does signs and shows who he is and what he's come to do. And then the book of glory is the second half of the book of John. They're not equal in time at all. The entire second half of the book takes place over about a span of a week. But until then, until we pick that up later in the fall, perhaps in October, we're going to be looking at the family. Our text this morning is 1 John 2 beginning at verse 28 and through the third verse of chapter 3. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 1 John 2, beginning at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself even as He is pure. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that You would open up Your word to us this morning. That You would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and the benefits and blessings that He has purchased for us by His perfect life and atoning death. Lord, we ask this morning that You would bind us together in love and that we would give You all the glory. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Over the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at the family. It's a very practical and timely subject because the family is crucial to our society. The family is established by God. The family is explained to us through God's Word. So we might first ask, why do we have families? I think there is no institution that we take more for granted than the family. And yet there is no institution more important. Families are the best place to care for children. Families are the best place to build relationships. Families are where we are nurtured, encouraged, and loved. Families are the foundation of our culture and our society. The family goes far beyond the church, but the family is also essential for the church. The family is not an accident. It is designed by God. In the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve, God established the family And he has seen fit to see earthly families grow and prosper from that day in the garden. But this morning, I want us to see that our earthly families are merely a picture of what God has shown to us in the family of God. Far too often, we think about God as a projection of the reality around us. We think we can understand God because of what happens in our lives. When the truth is that we can only understand the reality of life by knowing who God is, by knowing His character, and by knowing what He has established. And so we will not truly know how we should live as fathers or as mothers or as children unless we first understand our place in the family of God. So this morning, I would like us to look at two things about the family of God. First, that we come into God's family by grace. We come into God's family by the work of God, a work of sovereign grace as He draws us to Himself. And then secondly, we see that we are loved by God in His family. That we're not just members of an organization. We're not just a part of a company. No, we are a part of the family of God. And God loves His children. We come into God's family by grace. And we are loved by God in His family. Let's begin then by looking at how we come into God's family by grace. We think about being children of God in terms of the doctrine of adoption. 
that God adopts us as his children. He brings us into his family. And oftentimes, we do not think of the family of God along with justification by God. We are to be comforted by the knowledge and the truth that God has brought us into his family. And so we must ignore two primary errors in this sense. First, there are those who reject God's grace in Jesus Christ, who want nothing to do with Jesus, who will not believe upon him, who do not want forgiveness of sins. And yet, they claim the privilege of being God's children. And yet there are others who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have trusted in God's grace, who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they doubt that God is their Father. Here John is telling us that justification and adoption are inseparable. They cannot be looked at apart. You might think of it this way, especially the young people among us. When I was much younger and my children were much smaller, they often had the occasion to play with these toys called Legos. And what they would do is they would build things with these blocks, and then they would take the blocks apart and build something new. But there would be times when two of the blocks would be so stuck together that they couldn't separate them. And so they would bring them to Dad, and they would give Dad the job of breaking apart these Legos so that they could be made into something else. And it wasn't often, but there were occasions where even Dad couldn't separate them. They couldn't be used for something else. It was as if they were fused together. That's a picture that I want in your mind of justification by faith and adoption by grace. You cannot be adopted if you are not justified. And you will not be justified and not be adopted. These two doctrines go together. And so if we think about that that way, there is a truth that you must take to heart right at this moment. We have to stop trying to earn the right to be God's children. There are too many of us that too often think that we need to please God. We need to work our way into God's love so that we can be the children of God. And if we think about the family, this just makes no sense. How many of you had an interview to be a part of your family? Did you come before your parents and they sit you down at a table in a chair and say, okay, tell us a little bit about yourself. What have been some struggles that you faced? Now, where do you see yourself in five or ten years? Tell us about the skills that you can bring to our family so that we can be a better family unit. Where's your resume? Now, you're laughing because it's ridiculous. I want to tell you it's just as ridiculous to have that attitude about the family of God. God is not asking you how much you pray or how much of the Bible you read each day or what you've memorized, or how you have served him, or what you have done before he will determine whether you will be his child. No. We become a child of God because of the grace of God. John really wants us to see this. Look with me at 
verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Now this first word, see, we've met before in the Bible. And older translations will often translate this word, behold. John is saying, look, pay attention here. I'm going to tell you something important. And what is the important thing that he's telling us? That we should be called the children of God. You see, John wants you to know that the fact that you are a child of God is because of God's gracious love. Do you see how that verse flows? John doesn't say, see, because we're so intelligent and faithful that we are called the children of God. John doesn't say, see how much we have served the kingdom so we are called the children of God. No, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's because of God's love, God's sovereign love that comes to us, not because of anything we've done, actually in spite of what we have done. Because of all of the sin that we have committed, we should be separated from God. But God in Christ sets his love on us and draws us to himself. Adoption or being brought into the family of God is an act of God. It's an act of God's grace. And it is so wondrous to us that we think we do not deserve it. God adopts into his families those whom he has graciously justified. This love is bestowed on us. We are the ones who have it. So who then are the we? Who is John speaking to? Well, if we were to take a tour through this first letter, we would see <coughs> that the we here is we who have fellowship with the Father and the Son in chapter 1, verse 3. The we here are we who have confessed our sins and who are forgiven and cleansed in chapter 1, verse 9. The we here are we who have an advocate in Christ in chapter 2, verse 1. We are those who know Christ and who keep his commands in chapter 2, verse 3. We are those who abide in Christ, in whom the word of God also abides in chapter 2, verse 14. And in our text, in verse 29, we are those who have confidence at the return of Christ and who practice righteousness. Now, this is merely consistent with the rest of Scripture. Who are God's children? They are those who have received Christ and who believe in him. John writes about this at the very beginning of his gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says, those have the right to be the children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God makes his children. A child of God is not someone who tries out for a position, who submits a resume. He doesn't try to impress God with all of his good deeds to get a reward. 
A child of God is not someone who musters up the courage to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. No. A child of God is actually someone who was an enemy of God. God not only is not interviewing you for his family, he is actively seeking those who have rebelled against him, who have sinned against him, who are enemies. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that God makes alive the dead and he makes the enemies children. Without Christ, we are separated from God. We are aliens. We have no hope and are without God in the world. And God transforms us. He makes us not only alive. He makes us not only no longer strangers. He makes us members of the household of God. That's the work of God. You might even say that God is not interested in justifying sinners without making them his children. Now, how does this change take place? It's rooted in the person and work of Christ. Just like the doctrine of justification being made right with God, the doctrine of adoption is founded on the merit of Jesus, what Jesus has done. Because of what Jesus has done, we are forgiven. And because Jesus is the Son, we are sons and daughters. Adoption is a gracious act of God, and that grace, that grace comes to us in Christ. If you are a child of God today, it is because you are in Christ. It is because you have professed faith in Christ and said that the only hope you have, the only way to find the forgiveness of sins, the only way to be reconciled with God is to trust Jesus. To trust that he has done what you cannot. That is how we are found in Christ. And that is how we are brought into the family of God. And that means that if you are a child of God, you must rely wholly on the work of Christ. Your hope is Christ. Your glory is Christ. Your life is Christ. And for this reason, the Christian has a sure and immovable place in the family of God. You didn't do anything to bring yourself into the family, and you can't do anything to drive yourself out. When I was younger, and I read books not because I wanted to, but because they were assigned to me in college classes, I read a book by Charles Dickens called Great Expectations. You may be familiar with it. It's the story of a young boy by the name of Pip. And Pip is told by an attorney that he has an anonymous benefactor, someone who has given lavish resources so that he can attend the best schools, so that he can find the best job and he could be a proper gentleman. Because you see, Pip comes from a very lower class strata of English society. And so the attorney manages these funds for Pip, and Pip attends schools, and he becomes prim and proper and learns to become a gentleman. And Pip is convinced 
that his benefactor is a woman by the name of Miss Habisham. Now, if you don't know the books, I can't give you all of the feel of who she is, but let's just say, to say she's eccentric would be vastly understated. She lives in a broken down house in her wedding gown that she's never taken off because her fiancé left her at the altar. And she is not all there. And so Pip begins to go through his life studying the things that he believes she wants him to know. Speaking in a way that she would want him to speak. Looking for a job that she would want him to have because he's trying to live up To the benefactor. He's trying to show himself worthy of the gift that she has given. But in a typical Dickensian fashion, Miss Havisham is not the benefactor. I won't spoil the entire book for you to tell you who the benefactor is, but suffice it to say that Pip has been on a treadmill pointing in the wrong direction his whole life. He's been trying to show himself worthy when he never needed to. And sadly, that is how some Christians live. They think that they need to show themselves worthy of God. That they need to earn what God has given freely. But the scriptures tell us that we become a part of the family of God by God's sovereign grace. God doesn't look for our merit. God doesn't look for anything from us. He wants us as his children because of his sovereign love. So every child of God should say, Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Well, we are brought into the family of God by God's sovereign grace. But we are also loved by God in his family. And God wants us to know that we are his children and we are loved. And John drives the point home to us to go past the wonder. As we begin chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And we might be amazed with wonder. The love of God, being a child of God. And John brings it right home to us. He says, and so we are. It's true. You can count on it. It's a fact. God wants to draw us into his arms and to shower love upon us. Do you doubt God's love? God is not angry. He wants to comfort his children. He puts it this way in the prophet Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with singing. Do you see the picture there? It's of a father or a mother holding a newborn, an infant, and and rocking the baby and singing to the baby to calm the baby down. The baby might be worked up because it's been awakened or because he or she is hungry. But, you see, God gives us the picture of his love of what a parent looks like. Now, I can tell you, it's been a while, 
But I've spent nights with a child in my arms. And let me tell you, at two or three in the morning, you will rock the baby. And you will sing a lullaby. And you will say to the child, would you please, please just go to sleep. Please. But you're not angry at the child. You don't say, well, because you're crying, you're out the door tomorrow. No. You love that child. And that's the picture God wants you to see of his relationship with you. I guarantee you that you will fail God. You will sin against God. You will break his commandments. The scripture tells us that each and every day. But the scripture also tells you just as clearly that your relationship with God as your heavenly father is not up for grabs every day. You are safe and secure in God's love. He cannot love you any more than he already loves you in Christ. He is not waiting for you to please him. He is not waiting for you to obey him. He even provides for our inability to know that he loves us by reminding us over and over again. He gives us the spirit whom Paul calls the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit, so that we might cry out to him. Think about that. God loves you so much, if you doubt that you are his child, he gives you his spirit to remind you and encourage you and tell you you are his child. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then again, Paul says something very similar in Galatians chapter 4. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Note the time connection there. Because you are his child, he sends you evidence of his love. And he sends his spirit. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Over and over again, God tells us he loves us. It's not dissimilar to how a parent repeats his or her love to her child. You tuck your child in on a Monday night and you say, I love you. Sleep well. And then on Tuesday, you tuck them in and you say, you know what? I love you. Have a good night's sleep. And then on Wednesday, you said, can you guess something? I love you. Sleep well. And on Thursday. And on Friday. And each and every day. Do you doubt the love of God? He tells you he loves you in Zephaniah. Do you still doubt? He tells you in Romans again. And then he tells you again in Galatians. And he tells you again in 1 John. And over and over again in the scriptures. That is his way. We are his children. So we need reassurance. And God gives it to us. 
But you may ask, well, I love my children, and because of that, I provide practically for them. I feed them. I clothe them. Can God possibly love me in so practical a way? Is God's love merely theological? And the answer is, yes, God can, and he does love us practically. Those who seek the Lord, says the psalmist, shall not lack any good thing. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? <coughs> God gives us the gifts that we need. And it is evidence of his love for us. Jesus has given us a prayer that we often call the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, we are called to pray to the Lord. How often? Daily. We are to pray each day for our daily bread. And what that means is we're to pray for God to provide to us today, knowing that we can pray tomorrow and he will provide to us tomorrow. He will not leave us astray. He will not abandon us. Each and every day he comes to us and he loves us. But that's not even the greatest way that we can see that God loves us. The greatest aspect of God's love in adopting his children is that he makes them like himself. Now, we may not have a perfect vision of what we will be. Paul, or excuse me, John says this in verse 2. We are now God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we do know, John says, that we shall be like him. Now, what child is not proud when he can do the things that his father does? What child does not want to be like their father? You know, there is a resemblance. It's why John tells us that the world does not know us because it did not know him. There's a resemblance in the family. When I was younger, I spent some time working in my father's office during a summer. And my father was not the kind of dad that gave me privileges and advanced me and put me at the head of the organization. No, I was always at the bottom, very last, because he wanted me to learn and to not be seen as being privileged by him. So I worked in the mailroom. And in those days, I was a freshman in college, and uh, as I had grown and looked, I was about the same height as my dad. Uh, I had about the same build, the same facial features. Now, he had more gray than I did back then. He's probably less gray than I have now, but, but he had more gray then. We even wore the same shaped glasses. And so, I don't know if you've ever worked in a mailroom, but it's, it's just kind of grunt work. You have to sort packages and put the envelopes uh, out for delivery and maybe go as a messenger and carry things different places. And 
So people would work in there, but, you know, there would be times when they would sit and have, you know, a Coke, or they would converse and talk, or, you know, this was before the days of scrolling on your phone. I guess that's what they do now in mailrooms. And so I would come into the mailroom, and all of a sudden, everyone would be busy. They'd start moving envelopes and doing things, showing just how hard of workers they were. Now, why would they do that? It's because they thought I was my father. And then they would see that it wasn't Frank, it was Fred. And they would go, oh, okay, and they would go back to what they were doing. But you see, there was a resemblance there. And you see it in your own families, don't you? Kids, don't you feel closer to your parents when a family friend or a relative says to you, you have your father's face. Or you look exactly like your mother did when she was your age. Now, no matter what our age is now, we are a child of God because God is making us like Christ. More and more every day, you come to look like your Savior. So when the world comes up to you and ignores you or makes fun of you or is cruel to you, know that they do that because there's a family resemblance. Just like the world did not know Christ and did not accept Christ, it will not love or accept you. You look too much like your father and your elder brother. Take joy from that. Don't try to hide your appearance. Be thankful that God has such love in store for you. There are many ways in which the family is under attack today. We're going to look at some of them in this sermon series. There are many blessings that come to the family. We're going to look at some of those as well. But the most important thing we can know about the family is that it is a picture of the relationship God has brought us into with himself. The best of families have problems. We don't look for hope in our earthly family. We look to the true and living God our Heavenly Father and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us and who has made us His children by His grace. When we see the blessings the Lord has given to us, we can follow that pattern in our families. As the Bible always teaches us, do not begin with what you can do. Begin with what God has done. He sent His Son to free you from your sins and to make you His child. He has given you brothers and sisters. You are more than forgiven. You are a part of the family of God. Let's pray.